Welcome to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are. Our lives are a beautiful tapestry that God is weaving, each one unique from the next. How does God, our designer, create these beautiful tapestries from nothing? Join us now as we continue our journey through the lineage of Jesus with Cheryl Broderson. One of Cheryl's message, The Tapestry of God, in Ruth and Boaz. Dorothy Sayers, who maybe some of you um, know as the great English mystery writer, but anyway, she, she was also an apologist for the faith and wrote a book called The Mind of the Maker. And one of her contentions was that people didn't realize that God was beyond being an engineer or a great physicist or a great scientist, even though every part of creation is finely tuned and engineered and the law of physics are learned from God's creation. She said more than anything, God is a great artist and he has filled this world with his artistry. In Ephesians 2.10, A scripture, no doubt that you know, and we talked about it, I think, week after week. For you are God's workmanship. That word workmanship means poema or his masterpiece. Our God has a picture, a design, and beauty in his mind that he is putting onto the canvas of our life. And when God does beauty, he does beauty in a flawless way. He thinks up this concept and then he begins to speak it into existence. I think of stars and how dramatically God put these stars on a black, inky, velvet sky in perfect symmetry, in in perfect distance. And so they shine and the beauty of of some twinkling from a distance and some closer. Years ago, um, Brian and I were in Green Valley and there were a couple beach chairs in my dad's uh, cabin and we got them out and it was freezing cold. So we have all our coats on, we've got blankets and we're we're on these beach chairs, which is so funny because it's like 30 something degrees and we've got them totally reclined and we're just staring up at the sky because it was so absolutely gorgeous. It was so filled with stars and beauty. And, you know, it was so dark around us. It, you know, I couldn't see Brian and he couldn't see me. So we kept talking to each other. But we could see the sky and the lights. And it was so, so beautiful. But then I think of trees, their various leaves and their various sizes, the different colors, the styles of even the bark that are so individualistic for the type of tree, the many shapes and the twists of the branches. And and not only are these trees beautiful, but they're functional. They've got this incredible purpose. They take carbon out of the atmosphere and turn it into oxygen. 
They provide food. They provide shade. And yet they're a thing of absolute beauty. And then there's water. I mean, who doesn't love the sound of a waterfall or the gurgling of a stream or the sound of the pounding waves on the beach? It is so purposeful, though, that water is this universal solvent. When you go to get a stain out of, you know, a a garment, what do you do? You're using water, right? Or maybe you've been at the restaurant and you're getting the ice cube on it immediately. You want that water because water is a universal solvent. I think of the oceans, how they come up on the shore and they wash all the debris left by those people who don't live here, right? They leave it on the beaches, not us. And they take it out to sea where you know those bottom feeders take care of it for us. But water is so necessary for life. We can't, we can't live without water. Three days without water. We can't live without water. Nature can't survive without water. And then water also has this refreshing quality. When you're thirsty, nothing works but water nothing. There is just that refreshing of water. Job said in chapters 26, 14 of the book named after him, indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways and how small a whisper we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? God sees the design in the picture and God, as we spoke about last week, he can create out of nothing, bara. But God also uses discarded items. He works with people's casts off. In Isaiah 61.3, we're told that he gives ashes. Uh, For ashes, he gives beauty in exchange. You know, I don't know if you have those friends who can see potential in a garage sale. I I go by a garage sale and I see a garage sale. I see things that people don't want and I don't want them either. (laughs) But God has a way of finding those treasures in the midst of a garage sale and going and polishing them up and finding the exact right place for them. We're told in Psalm 84, 6 that he takes tears and he turns them into pools of refreshment. We see in the lives of Joseph and Moses and Jephthah, these men who are all rejected by their families and by Israel, we see that God raises up leaders and saviors. And of course, we think of Jesus, the rejected chief cornerstone, and how God took Jesus out of the foundation of our lives and the foundation of the church and the foundation of the world is all built upon the stone that was rejected that has now become the chief cornerstone. God uses little things to make big things. Have you noticed that? He uses a little stone to take down a fully armored giant. He uses a small jar of oil in a widow's house to pay off debts and to sustain a family. He uses an old prophet in 2 Kings chapter 6 to capture a whole Syrian army. He uses two loaves and five fish to feed a multitude of over 5,000. We see that God also uses even bad things. In Psalm 76, 10, we're told that even the wrath of man will praise God. In Genesis 50, 20, Joseph discovered that God even uses evil for his greatest purposes. In Nahum 1, 3, Nahum proclaims that God has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. 
And then, of course, in the cross, we see that what man means for, ultimately, for ultimate cruelty and shame, absolute humiliation, becomes the greatest emblem of love, ugliness turned to beauty, death turned to life, condemnation becomes forgiveness, sorrow becomes joy, and hell gives way to heaven all through the cross. Corey Tinboom related the Christian life to a tapestry that God is weaving. I read up on tapestries this week, and I found that tapestries are all unique in design and on their surface. They're not like any other textile or art form. And that unlike other forms of art, that they are actually creating the surface and the design at the same time. You see, usually an artist goes to a surface and he creates something. But with tapestry, it's a little different because the actual surface is also being created at the same time as the work of art. It consists of a warp, which are threads that are taut from top to bottom, and then what's called the weft, which goes from you know, one side to the other. It goes um, horizontally instead of vertically. So the warp goes vertically and the weft goes horizontally. And the weft is weaved in between the warp. And sometimes the artist will skip two threads. He might go two, one, two. He might go one, two, three. He has this way of weaving according to the design that he is making. The weft employs all sorts of different materials and fabrics. It will use cotton, linen, gold, silver, rags, wool, silk, and I read even in some bubble wrap. To each his own. But the objects for the weft are chosen according to the designer's intentions. He sees the picture that he's going to make. And so he chooses by color, by texture, because of the all-over design and because of his own purposes. Tapestries have been around since the 3rd century BC, and they have a variety of purposes. One of these purposes is to tell a story. In fact, one of the oldest tapestries in the world is the Book of Revelation in tapestry form, often there to commemorate an event that happened in history. Other times they're just to show off beauty and color or to bring beauty and color to a room. In... um, olden days, they used to be used to cover up the walls. The walls would be cold and the walls would be um, ugly. And so they would put these tapestries to cover up these walls and to bring warmth into the house, to keep the breezes out, to bring insulation to the house. Kings and nobles would have their tapestries go wherever they were staying. And so the tapestries would be rolled up and moved from house to house wherever a king was. Tapestries were a lifetime achievement. The average weaver works 30 to 40 hours a week and only produces one square meter a month. And, you know, a meter is about a yard. So working 30 to 40 hours a week, it takes them four weeks just to get about a a yard of this design done. What does that speak to you about your life? No wonder it's taking so long. (laughs) A weaver must know not only the design he is creating beforehand, 
but he must know how to make that design appear as he weaves. He must know exactly the tension of each thread that he's pulling through the weft, uh, each warp, whatever. He must know it. I don't know it because I don't weave. I knit, but I don't weave. But he also must use just the right color at just the right place in the tapestry. If tapestry is too perfect, if you look at a tapestry and it's too perfect, if the stitches are all uniform, even, and there are no dangling threads on the underside, if it's too smooth on the back or the front, it's an imitation and it's made by machine. And its value is far less than those that are hand woven. Corrie Tinboom saw her life as a tapestry. She was born in Holland, raised in a Christian family. She believed in the Lord. She never married. And she made watches with her father. That was her trade. When she was in her 50s, World War II broke out. And her family was led by the Lord to hide Jews. She was arrested, found guilty by a tribunal of Nazis. She was sent to Ravensbrück prison where she was maltreated, where she had to suffer countless indignities, where she lived in deplorable conditions, where she was forced to labor, where there were drills at four o'clock and five o'clock in the morning out in the cold, where she was treated with cruelty, where her sister died, but 12 days later, she was released. Corey truly believed, Romans 8, 28, that all things are used by God in our lives to work together or weave together a perfect design. Corey saw that whatever threats, whatever hardship, whatever blessing, whatever deprivation, whatever sorrow, whatever joy was used by God. And she put this in a poem called, Life is But a Weaving. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times in foolish pride, forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly. Will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why? The darkest threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choices up to him. But not only was Corey's life a tapestry, but all of our lives our tapestries being woven by God. He is taking the various threads of our life, all the colors from deep, sorrowful hues to bright and bold tones. He's using all different fabrics, strands of silver, threads of cotton, common stuff, linen, silk, flax, heavy wool, to weave a work of art, a poema, a masterpiece. Nothing in your life is meaningless. Nothing. Nothing in your life is useless. Nothing. Nothing that touches you goes unnoticed by God. God takes each thing and employs it in his loom. This glorious work of God is seen in his word. The testimony of every great Bible hero is born in adversity, 
tested in deprivation, formed in the wilderness, challenged by opposition. It's about overcoming obstructions and standing when slandered. It's in these atmospheres that God weaves his greatest masterpiece. And this is the story of Ruth and Boaz. It's a tapestry of beauty. It's a tapestry of romance, which we all love. It's a tapestry of redemption. It's the story of grace. It's the story of restoration. And it's a story that is told in the loom of this book of Ruth. We see the great artistry of God who clothes the fields with an array of flowers and of varied hues, as Jesus testified in Luke chapter 12. God uses a host of different colors of threads and different fabrics to weave together the story of Ruth and Boaz. This book shows that all things work together to create a testimony, to create beauty, to create function. So many lessons to learn through the book of Ruth. You could go on and on and on. And to show God's purpose will not be thwarted because Ruth and Boaz are in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So what threads do we see? Well, I think that the book of Ruth begins with the threads of drama drama threads, right? These are, these are deep, kind of angry colors. And what we see is Elimelech leaves Bethlehem because of a famine. He moves to Moab. And some condemn Elimelech over this move. They say he had a lack of faith and that because of this lack of faith, he was visited with death. Except for the fact that his sons are named Malon and Chilion. Malon means sickly, And Chilion means wasting away. I think these boys were born problemed. I think from birth they said, you know what? I don't know if these guys are going to last. Who names? Who looks at their baby and goes, oh, wasting away. (laughs) You know, or sickly. But these are the names that these, you know, Naomi, I think, had a problem with depression. We'll get to that later. (laughs) But these are the names that she names her son. So, The Bible does not condemn Elimelech for moving to Bethlehem. It's just a statement of fact. I mean, moving from Bethlehem. It's not condemned. It's just simply a statement of fact. This is what he did. There was a famine. Perhaps he was worried about Malon and Chilion getting enough to eat, knowing that they were sickly. So he makes this move on the other side of the Dead Sea, a whole different country. In fact, he had to travel through Ammon, to get down to Moab. But he makes this move. It's a thread of drama. It's a dramatic move. It's a move away from everything that is familiar for Naomi and Naomi's sons. It's a move away from family. It's a move into or through enemy territory because the Ammonites throughout the history of Israel were at odds against the nation. But we also see that there are distant threats These are all going to be Ds. I'm just going to prepare you. You can just do D, 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 D. Distant threads or foreign fabric. These are imports. You see Moabite threads here because Malon marries Ruth the Moabitess. And these are different colors than are found in Israel. When I was in college, I took a Venetian art class and it was 
fascinating. I think it had to do with the teacher. She loved Venice. And she would talk about the Venetian colors. And the Venetians, like Raphael and Botticelli, they, they brought these deeper colors. In fact, the colors of uh, the Venetian artists are so rich that you almost feel like you're being sunk into them, that you're being drawn into these deep, deep uh, colors and the richness. They brought some of the, the crimsons and the, the burgundies and, and the purples, and they brought just this, this deep hues to um, their art that were copied later on by um, Michelangelo and others, the depth of the colors. And so we see this, this richness of colors in these distant threads as Ruth the Moabitess marries into the family of Elimelech. We also see the threads of death, these um, dark, dark, somber hues as Elimelech dies and Malon and Chilion also succumb to death in Moab. We see threads of discouragement as Naomi is left with two daughter-in-laws and she can't support them. She's a widow in a foreign land and she must return to Bethlehem. But we also see threads of desire because she hears that there's bread in Bethlehem and news of God visiting his people with bread. You know, oftentimes we cannot see how the threads of desire can be part of God's loom, his tapestry. You know, often we accept like, oh yes, God can use these dark things. You know, some of us, we are kind of like Naomi's. We accept the darkness and the hard places in our life sometimes better than the glorious, happy places. I don't know about you, but I've been having one of those weeks, you know, where I have like two really good days. I'm like, okay, this day is good. It's really good. I'm going to bed and it's still good. Okay, but tomorrow is coming, you know? And then I finish tomorrow and it's like, okay, that, that was a good day too. All right, now I'm getting scared because I've had two good days, you know? Sure enough, the third day, boom, you know? You're just like, I knew, I knew you were there. I knew you were hiding somewhere, you know? I knew you were gonna come out. But we can sometimes have a greater expectation for the warfare than for the blessing. We can get to that place. And, and we're not allowing sometimes God to also weave in and say, your desires, I'm going to use these desires, these good desires. Naomi has this desire to return to Bethlehem. And why? Because she hears that God has visited his people and it's evidenced by the fact that there is now bread or plenty, a good harvest in Bethlehem. And this is the draw, but God's going to use this. Again, in Philippians chapter two, verse 13, it says, God works in us to will and to do of his own good pleasure. God will put his will in our hearts. That's what he does. He puts his desires in us. That's one of the great things about prayer. Because prayer is not about getting our will done as much as it is aligning us with the good will of God. It makes our desires his desires. His desires our desires. This is one of the things that prayer does. So the threads of desire. Next we see the threads of dedication. Orpa does not remain with you. How did she get all those D's? It was divine. <clears throat> the threads of dedication. Orpa does not remain with Naomi. This thread will not be part of the tapestry. Isn't it interesting? God says, no, not that thread. 
God chooses the threads. There's some threads that we're like, Lord, that would look so good. I don't care where you put it in. Just put it in. And he's like, nope, not that thread. But Ruth clings to Naomi and says, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything, but death parts you and me. That is dedication. God sees the tapestry of our lives before he makes it. He sees the good that will come from the hardship of our lives. Just look at the cross. What man meant for ultimate cruelty and shame became the greatest emblem of love. Death turned to life. Condemnation became forgiveness. Sorrow became joy. And hell gave way to heaven. God uses all things, weaved together to create His perfect design. If you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply visit our website at graciouswords.com or call 1-800-733-6443 and refer to it by name, which is The Tapestry of God in Ruth and Boaz. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we will look at part two of our study on The Tapestry of God in Ruth and Boaz as we continue our series with Cheryl Broderson through the lineage of the King. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.